Hello again. Welcome to Tell Me. On this episode, I'm talking to Nikki Toscano. Nikki is a friend of mine. She's a writer, an executive producer, a showrunner, and she's done a lot of things. But most recently, she has a limited series out on Paramount Plus called The Offer. And it is about the making of the iconic film, The Godfather. Godfather is one of my favorite movies. I love the whole idea of this show. I'm obsessed. I can't wait for the rest of it. The cast does an incredible, incredible job. So Nikki and I are talking all things about a career, writing in Hollywood, show running, what it means to be a writer. We had a great conversation. So if anybody's interested in that path, this is a good episode for you. She's the best. She's the realist. And I hope you enjoy this episode and I hope you check out her show. Hi. Hi. Oh my God. Okay. So I binged last night. You did? I did. So Chris and I had a little bit of a thing because he wanted to watch the third one. And I was like, I have to go to bed. I have to wake up and talk to Nikki. So we can't. (laughs) So now I feel like he's going to watch the third one without me. (laughs) Maybe I'm going to watch the third one without him. How's that? There you go. Do it. So Nikki Toscano is here. And Nikki co-wrote the offer. I was a writer, showrunner of The Offer, executive producer, what have you. And The Offer is a TV show on Paramount Plus about the making of The Godfather. It's so good, Nikki. It's so good. Thank you. I loved it so much. And I said to Chris, like, do you see how hard it is to thread the stories to give every episode a cliffhanger? Is that the hardest part of your job or no? I don't think so. I mean, I think that the cliffhangers are the things that kind of come easy. I mean, it's really weaving the creative content to be building to that moment and all of the various storylines and making sure that you're checking the boxes for each character's character arc while simultaneously sort of dovetailing into this ending. Right. Okay. So I'm super obsessed with this show and even the idea of the show. So can I say Miles Teller is hot? You can totally say that. (laughs) I agree. I feel like there's a lot of women in this world that agree with that assessment. So absolutely. Okay. So the show is about the making of The Godfather, the movie, which is hands down, definitely one of the top five best movies ever made of all time, I would say. And I am such a fan of these movies, of The Godfather movies and all of the actors in them. And I didn't even know these stories. So I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give it away because I really want people to go watch it. Like first watch the Godfather (laughs) series. If you haven't seen it, please go watch all three of them and then go back and watch the offer because like who knew Sinatra was such a gangster? I mean, we all heard, you know, obviously he had mob ties and I mean, they had Bobby Kennedy killed, but was that creative license or is that factual that he was literally telling the Colombian crime family what to do? Everything that we did is rooted in truth. And I think that Sinatra was not a fan of The Godfather. I think because, as people may see in the show, is that everyone thought that the Johnny Fontaine character was Frank Sinatra, and he didn't want to be associated with that. So I think that we portrayed a version of that story. Yeah, it's interesting because I have a lot of friends who are watching a show about the Lakers, right? And Jeannie Buss and the Laker organization. And a lot of people have a lot to say about the way they're portraying the people in the show because they're people that are alive. And they had to, I guess, take creative license on that show 
So it gets complicated when you're retelling these stories of real events because you do have to have some drama because you're making a TV show, but then you want to pay homage to the real life person and the actor. Who's the actor that plays Pacino? A young actor named Anthony Ippolito. He was extraordinary. You know, he put himself on tape. We saw the tape and, you know, having just worked with Pacino on Hunters, I just thought it was uncanny. And in particular, the first day that he showed up to set. And I believe it was a scene that is in, I think it's in episode two. And he sat down opposite Miles Teller and it was eerie how close he got to portraying, you know, the essence of Pacino. And that's the one of the things that, you know, was something that we talked about early on was making sure that the people that we were casting were not doing impersonations of these people, but, you know, capturing the soul and the essence of these people. I have to say, you all and the actors did an unbelievable job. Chris is freaking out over the kid that played Coppola. Like that scene when he's in the restaurant, again, I'm trying not to give stuff away, but like when he first pitches to Evans, I mean, all of these actors do such an impressive job because it's a whole nother level to play someone who lived and someone who was iconic and someone who everybody knows what they sounded like, their mannerisms. It's just a whole other level of skill that you have to have. And these people nailed it. Yeah. I have a really good Al story. I mean, any story you have with Al is a great story, right? (laughs) Yes. You worked with him and I'm a huge fan of everything he's ever done. And I've been lucky enough to spend a little bit of time with him. I had dinner with him once. The gentleness and the sweetness of Al Pacino. You know, he said, Ellen, I've been playing Salome my whole career. And he said, that's what we did in the theater. We played the same characters night after night, month after month. The Greeks, the Romans, the origins of theater are that you played the same character over and over and over. There's no shame in that. In that moment, as a young actor, really with being so self-critical, his generosity of spirit, it literally just was like the biggest hug anyone could have ever given me in that moment. And the gentleness of him as a person, that actor really conveyed that in the show. And all these actors are just crushing it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I know that they do. You filmed this during COVID, right? Were there a lot of challenges with that? Yeah, we did film during COVID. There were a lot of challenges, but it was sort of remarkable, I have to say, how everyone sort of came together and collectively wanted to be, first and foremost, safe on set, protecting everybody else. And it was really, I think, a unifying event for set. You know, would I prefer to shoot a show in COVID over a show not in COVID? Probably not. But I do think that everybody was so, so excited. You know, when you have The Godfather and people's appreciation of that movie as the sort of driving force of your series, everybody is so incredibly excited to show up and game to play. And I think despite the COVID, everybody was pretty remarkable and came together and we had a great COVID team. So it was not without its challenges, you know, particularly with Omicron coming and sort of ravaging. We were just sort of inching our way to the finish line, hoping that everyone in the cast and crew did not get COVID so that we could finish our show ultimately. But everybody was great. Everybody was game. 
the biggest overarching theme, I think, between life and this movie, and even probably making this show for you, is how challenging it was for these guys to get this movie made. Like, nobody wanted to make this movie. The mafia was trying to stop them. The studio didn't want to pay for it. There was just so many obstacles in their way, and their passion kept them going. And I think that that's just an amazing lesson for every young person in life to know is that if you want something bad enough, you just have to keep finding a way. You got to go around it, over it, underneath it, to the side of it. However you have to get there, you got to get there. You got to find a way. And I love that as a theme for life in this movie. And I didn't really realize, I mean, you know, living in this town and working in this business, you hear a lot of crazy stories, but it's such a brilliant idea for a show. Like there's so much content out there right now. And this is like a real good idea. Thank you. <laughs> you know, to make a TV show about one of the most iconic films of all time. Also, so you guys can't see this, but Nikki's sitting in looks like her house and she's got all these index cards <laughs> up behind her. Oh, I can't read any of them. So it's fine. But like, it's hilarious. All of those index cards that writers just post up all over themselves. Oh, yeah. They're all over my house, sadly. You know, breaking different pilots, pacing in your kitchen back and forth, trying to break a pilot is no easy feat. So the cards help. <laughs> for sure. For sure. For all your beats. So let's back it up and talk about your career as a writer in case there's anybody listening that has an interest in being a writer for film and television. What's your path? You know, when I was in college, I was a journalism major. So I came out to L.A. and I started writing for various magazines, doing profiles on actors and directors and commentary pieces on the industry. And it just sort of wasn't the same. It wasn't what I had envisioned for myself. And then I went to USC and their MFA program and took a bunch of screenwriting courses. And I was in this sort of adjunct program to the film school. It was under a professional writing heading. The program is no longer there. But you could explore fiction, playwriting, nonfiction, screenwriting, poetry. So I was a screenwriting fiction major. And I took a TV writing class and I just sort of loved it. I loved the idea of writing under deadline, which was something that I was used to doing. And there was just something about the format that appealed to me. So then I just started writing pilots and starting to try to break in in any way that that I could. And it was really hard and very, very challenging. A lot of initial rejection. And then I finally like won a couple of contests. And that sort of gave me a leg in to be read by various studio executives, network executives. And then I finally got a job <laughs> and sort of been going ever since. How did you come up with what you wanted to write about? I think it was like the things around me that were, you know, inspiring me at the time, you know, the things that you're watching. Inevitably, when you're watching something, whether you like it or you hate it, if it inspires you or leaves you cold, you have a certain perception and a certain feeling that is carried from that. And for me, it was about finding unique ways to tell a story that were capturing a feeling that I wanted to recreate, whether it was in a film or in an article. And then it's just about finding something that's unique and and trying to set that up in a world with a ton of content now. And yeah, I mean, that was pretty much it. Do you enjoy being a showrunner as opposed to just a writer? Because there's so much more responsibility that I can imagine there are parts of it that are not really fun. But the showrunner is kind of the tippity top. You know, you want to be like a creator and a showrunner. Yeah. 
once you're show running, you're doing a million other things. I feel the same way about studio executives. When they rise through the ranks, they're making less creative decisions and more business decisions. And it's like, wait, I used to just work with writers on developing TV shows. And so sometimes getting to sort of like the top of where you can get to in your field, you're actually not doing what you really love, love, love to do. So do you love being a showrunner or talk about that? I do. I'm kind of a person who operates better when I have a ton of stuff on my plate. And I find that it's sort of refreshing to be able to sort of work two muscles, you know, the creative muscle when you're overseeing a room, when you're guiding writers towards what they're writing in their episodes, when you're rewriting and the fun, creative power of that writer's room. And then there's a sort of management aspect to the job where you're overseeing everything. And it's sort of nice to be able to pivot back and forth so that you're not resting in just one thing all the time. I tend to get bored very easily and being a showrunner sort of keeps you on your toes at all times and sort of feeds this feeling in my belly to be doing more than one thing at once. When I was young, I used to, you know, work in restaurants and bars and they always say, oh, you should do everything in the restaurant that you can do. You should start out being a dishwasher. You know, at one point when I was young, I thought, oh, maybe I want to own a restaurant. Someone gave me the advice, well, you should do everything in the restaurant. You should do every single job and know every single part of the restaurant business if you want to someday own a restaurant. And I feel like the same is true for actors. Let's say, like, I think every actor not that every actor wants to direct, but I felt the same when I directed a few episodes of Grey's. You get to see all the departments. And stepping from actor to director, it's like you see things that you never have to think about as an actor. As an actor, really all you have to think about is you got to know your lines, show up, know the storyline. And as a director, you have to know everything else that's going on. And it really opens your eyes and makes you a better actor. You don't just think about yourself. There's a whole machine behind this show. It's not just me when I show up on set in my lines. It's like you have to know everything that's going on and how much work every department is putting in. Absolutely. Everybody cares so much about what they do. And then on shooting days, it just seamlessly comes together because everybody's so good at their jobs. And we're lucky to be doing this at the kind of highest level here. So we are lucky enough to work with crews that really do pull it together seamlessly and magically you just show up on set and everything is right. So yeah, that's a good point about show running is that you get to see all the departments. I recommend that for anything because anytime you can have perspective, I always tell my kids, you know, if they're having trouble in school or trouble with one person, I always say, step into the shoes of that person. How do you think they feel? You say you see this. What do you think they see? Yeah. You know, show running or directing or stepping in the shoes of different people from different points of view, I feel like is always helpful. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you use the restaurant metaphor. I mean, I feel like a lot of what I learned, you know, waiting tables, bartending, managing restaurants are tools that I utilize every day as a showrunner. And I think that what's appealing about what you're saying is you have the opportunity to continue learning 
the more shows that you run, the more you're able to understand what your key grip does, every aspect of what they do, what your post-supervisor does. You know what I mean? Your DP does. Why they're lighting a scene a certain way. Why something is called a fly swatter. You know, random things. And I feel like if you're paying attention, you really, really have the opportunity to be on a continual path of absorbing and learning and taking in. And that to me is fascinating. So are you always on set? Because in television and network TV, like the showrunners aren't generally on set very few times a season. They're just in the writer's room or then obviously during COVID, everyone has to be at their houses or whatever. So are you a showrunner who likes to be on set all the time? Absolutely. I think it's really important. And I've had the luxury though of running shows that were for streaming services. So in a lot of those cases, a lot of the episodes are written prior to shooting. You know, a lot of showrunners that work for broadcast are doing those two things simultaneously. So it's harder to get to set. So for me, I've had the luxury of being able to go to set. I do like being on set. I like to know what's happening. I like to develop a rapport with my actors. Ultimately, this is such a huge collaboration. And I find that when you're there and you have the opportunity to be speaking to everybody, whether it's your actor, whether it's your DP, and that collective collaboration, I think elevates the material. And when you're absent from that, it's almost like you're given a bunch of ingredients to bake a cake. And when you're on set, you get to see all those ingredients coming together rather than just being on your counter in your kitchen, if that makes sense. I can imagine because the offer is a period piece, obviously. So there are other challenges with respect to that in the authenticity of the hair, the makeup, the costumes, the sets. But like the one scene when Juno Temple and Miles Teller are walking through the Paramount lot and she's talking to him about the history that happened on that lot. And that doorway is where that happened. And this stage is where this happened. And I just loved that scene because it is when you're here and you have the privilege of working in this town and you get to go to these iconic places. That is the feeling. And I sort of get to experience that through my child. I love it here, obviously, because I grew up a fan of movies and television. That's the spirit I walk around this town with every day with my 12-year-old. You know, she loves movies. She loves TV. We love to watch movies together. And I love to drive by whatever those iconic spots and just say to her, like, Stells, this is where that was shot. And to have that sort of excitement back of like what drew us all to this place in the first place, you know, when you first saw whatever movies and TV inspired you to be in this business. Yeah. What was the first movie you ever saw? Do you remember? Uh, I'll say mine. You can think about yours. Okay. Mine was Singing in the Rain. I was just in awe of like the dancing, the singing. I'm trying to think back like that far. I have a far clearer sort of recollection of when I was preteen teenagers, you know, especially for this, my father, when I was, you know, like 11 or 12, sort of introduced me to The Godfather without my mother knowing. And we sat down and I was just captivated. You know, I started watching all of these other movies. And I think that my dad, who probably wanted a boy, was so excited that I was wanting to watch Mean Streets for like the fourth time. He was like, put it on. 
For me, yeah, it's like, obviously, I started watching Singing in the Rain and movies like that. But then as I got older, the same thing, I saw The Godfather and I saw Goodfellas and I saw Pope Greenwich Village. And I started to realize, oh, I live around a bunch of gangsters. (laughs) You know, like all the older Italian guys in my neighborhood, they all just seem like super nice guys who would give me $5 bills. And I just thought they were all super sweet guys. They're super generous, passing out $5 bills. They got suits in the trunks of their car, like it's for sale. You know, they're just like magical, right? Absolutely. And then when I started to grow up and watch these movies, I was like, oh, you know, you start to see like, oh, there's another side to these guys. There's been a lot of documentaries now about real life mafia stories that I've seen. I saw one called This is a Robbery on Netflix that was a little too close to home for me. You know, back in the day, stories would never told. That story about Frank Sinatra and the offer, like those stories would never get told at the time. Is the story on the bed in the book cover? I don't want to say it because people have to watch it. It's so good. That's a real story that really happened when he goes into the bed in the hotel. I mean, Robert Evans was, in fact, threatened. He may not have been threatened in that exact way, Uh but he was threatened, according to Al Ruddy. Right. Well, it's an amazing scene. Tell me the actor's name who plays Robert Evans, please. Matthew Good. He is just extraordinary. I mean, he showed up on set and then all of a sudden I got chills. All I could hear was Robert Evans' voice narrating the kid stays in the picture and hearing Matthew's voice. And now all I can hear is Matthew's voice when I think about Robert Evans. It's amazing. That's another great one for anyone listening. If you have never seen the kid stays in the picture and you don't know who Bobby Evans was, you got to look it up. You got to watch the kid stays in the picture. His story is incredible. He was a guy who came to Los Angeles. He was a garmento from New York. He was in the clothing business. He ran a company called Evan Pacone, I think. And he was at the Beverly Hills Hotel and he got discovered. He was a super good looking guy. He was in a couple of movies and he realized very early on, I don't want to be an actor. Actors have no power. And then he decided to be a producer. And an illustrious, real amazing Hollywood story and career was born from that. He also wrote a book It's really fun if you're into learning about Hollywood and perspectives. We consulted a bunch of resources in the research that we did for the offer. There's also been a number of articles that have been written on, you know, the making of The Godfather through time. And then the story of the offer is told from Al Ruddy's point of view, who was the producer on The Godfather, the last time a sole producer won for Best Picture. I hope I'm not saying that wrong. And Al Ruddy just had all of these incredible stories of what was the hardest film to make at every turn, every day. And we capture a lot of the fun of it and the humor of it. But it's kind of a commentary on what it means to have creative integrity. Like you're saying, you know, those moments where you're like, oh, my God, my room would be this way and I would have these details in it. When you stop fighting for those details and sometimes you could just got to go like this and walk away. But when you stop fighting for those details, who would have known what The Godfather would have been? Who would have been cast in it? Who would have been the production designer, the different kinds of infighting that was happening, the amazing light that Gordy Willis brought and opened the doors for cinematographers everywhere to be exploring this sort of Caravaggio look in cinema. It's all just incredibly fascinating. I mean, I could talk about it for hours, and I think that anybody that loves 
filmmaking will like this series, but I also think it's a very universal story because Al Ruddy was sort of this outsider underdog who had a couple credits under his belt and went to produce the greatest film ever made, arguably. Yeah, and it's part passion and part destiny, right? Like you think you have a passion for something, but all of those stars aligning where he would meet all those people that he needed to meet and he just never gave up. The thing about producing is everybody saw the potential in the material to keep fighting for it. That was the important part. All the actors do such a good job of portraying that too. The actor who plays Fuzo is hilarious. (laughs) He never stops eating. It's so funny. It's like his wife in that first scene when he's sitting there. He's going to go to L.A. and make the movie. She's like, don't let him eat this. He's got diabetes. He's got the sugar. Don't let him do this. And then you see him in L.A. and all he's doing is eating every time you see him. The scene with Coppola and Puzo out by the pool in the second episode. There's an iconic actor story that we hear. I'll tell you what I've heard and then we'll see if it matches up. But where Coppola's coming up with the scene of when Michael decides to do the hit in the restaurant and whether he's going to drop the gun or not. He takes you through the emotion of like, this is what it is. He's got to hold the gun. The suspense is happening. He's not going to drop the gun. And then all of a sudden he drops the gun and everybody can breathe. And that's when there's no turning back for the character of Michael. Have you heard the story, and maybe this is in the show, I hope I'm not giving it away, but have you heard the story about when they were watching the dailies and they were saying Pacino didn't have it? The story that I heard is that they were watching the dailies and the studio was like, Pacino doesn't have it. He's not doing anything. And then it's like, no, he was very, very calculated that he was playing the character of Michael Corleone one way until after that murder happens. And then after that murder happens, he has a very specific character choice to then turn it on because now the old Michael is dead and there's a real shift in the performance. And I think the story that I've always heard is the studio was like, he's not doing anything. Pacino's boring, whatever. And then after that scene, they see that it was all very deliberate. Have you heard that story? I've heard a version of that story and we do a version of that story. Can't wait. Okay. Without giving it away. But I do think that there were studio executives that were questioning Pacino's performance. And I'll just leave it at that. We definitely do a version of that story. Well, by the way, there's 30,000 versions of that story. There is. But all of those stories really help, right? When you're an actor or a writer or director or producer, any of these, and that's part of why I was so excited to talk to you today and have you tell me about the making of this show is because stories like this matter. You know, people hearing these stories and hearing people's experiences matter. My first studio movie was a movie called Moonlight Mile. I've seen it. Listen, I was terrified. That was my first studio movie, star-studded cast, and I literally had just landed. I was like a cocktail waitress in Miami Beach. That was like my first real acting job. I was like, holy shit, how did I get here? And I definitely probably carried that with me. Even though I was super prepared I knew all my lines. I felt like I had earned it. Anyway, I show up on this movie and ultimately nerves are going to take over. There was definitely moments where I was told that you're probably going to be fired because the first day I completely choked. The first day that we shot in a mail room and I literally had to jump over a counter, walk through a room, pick up a cat. I had to jump in a mailbag. I had to come out of the mailbag. I had to put the cat down. I had like nine pages of dialogue. Nothing in my small little acting experience in New York or doing Law and Order, nothing had ever been that detailed for me. I didn't really know how to go do all that. 
And so I definitely choked and it was like, oh, maybe this isn't the girl. And someone told me that story at lunch and Dustin Hoffman also and Jake Gyllenhaal, they all came to my trailer at lunch and they told me stories and helped me get through it. And then after lunch, I sort of pulled myself together and was able to not get fired. But all of these stories are, I guess, why we do what we do, right? We love telling the stories, but the stories behind the stories are so good also. Yeah. And I think speaking for myself, you know, every day I suffer from imposter syndrome. You know, I'm waiting for the WGA to come like knocking on my door and take my card back. But I think that that's what's cool about this business is finding a way to push through because you do have to have thick skin in this. You do have to ultimately persevere. But we're all sort of wavering. You know, there's times where I'm questioning, you know, what I wrote, the essence of a scene, the tone of a scene, all of those different things. I think it's a good thing that people are checking themselves and gut checking themselves even after they achieve a certain level of fame, success, what have you. I think it's incumbent upon us to gut check yourself at all times. There's another great scene that is making me think of another great moment in my life. Joe Colombo, he started to try to sort of unionize Italian-Americans. Mm -hmm. He thought Italian-Americans at that time were getting a bad rap, a bad reputation. And he thought that all of these other groups had formed fractions or sort of unionized in a way that they could stand up for themselves and defend themselves. And so he wanted to do this for the Italian-American community, which is, you know, kind of absurd because he was the head of a crime family. But it was probably 2008, maybe. And I was invited to go to the Italian American Foundation in Washington, D.C. They called me up and this man, he passed away, but he said, we want to give you an award and we're going to fly you to D.C. and we're going to give you this award for being an outstanding Italian American. So I thought, oh, well, that's cool. That's fancy. Okay. So then I get to D.C. and, you know, it's time for the event. And I'm sitting on the stage and they have all these tables lined up on the stage. And I'm sitting in between Martin Scorsese and Nancy Pelosi. Wow. And I thought, holy shit, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and so there's these incredible speakers and the leader of this award ceremony, he's standing up and he's sort of doing like a Joe Colombo. He's sort of saying like, we're Italian-Americans and we're so proud and, you know, we're not going to be portrayed the way we're portrayed in media and film is important to us. And we are not just these depictions of mafiosos that you see in the movies. And Marty Scorsese leans over to me and he says, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> I was like... That's awesome. It was the funniest moment <laughs> ever because he was talking about how Italian-Americans are only ever portrayed as mafia gangsters and we need to stop this. And Marty was just like, why'd this guy invite me? Oh my God, that's funny. I think what's so appealing about all of those kinds of films, I think, is it's kind of this idea of living in the gray. You know, you're from Boston, right? You look at Whitey and Billy Bulger. Does the fact that one was the president of the Massachusetts State Senate and the other one was a gangster, does it compromise or undermine the love the two brothers had for one another or how they were operating in a very, very different way? And I think that what is so captivating, at least to me, about, you know, quote unquote, gangster films is living in that gray space. And I think that that is not a bad thing, at least in my opinion. 
No, for sure. It makes for amazing, complex, exciting storytelling. And it's like the theme of your show is what will people do for their family? And you can't choose your family. I mean, you choose some of your family. There's your chosen family and your biological family. And what lengths people go to protect that is always the human condition. Absolutely. But yeah, I think that there's an extraordinary market. And I think that those are the kind of stories that people want to see. I mean, I think that flawed protagonists that feel real and who are governed by fighting for the people that they love. How we shoot television now. So we used to shoot, for those of you who don't know, we used to shoot everything on film. Real film that went into a camera. It had a certain look. It makes such a difference. You know, when I watch our show, I forget the year that we switched over, but you will see it. We used to shoot on film and it had a certain quality to the way it looked. Now we shoot digitally and it has a different quality. You shot the offer digitally? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it possible to shoot film anymore? Will anybody allow it or it's just too expensive? I think with all of the remarkable advances in digital filmmaking, I think that people are less inclined to go in that direction because obviously it's more expensive. And in TV, depending upon the TV show, anywhere from eight to 12 days an episode and your time is extremely limited. And I feel like digital filmmaking has advantages, particularly when you're under the gun. So there are people that still are trying to shoot certain things on film. And it's really just about the considerations are financial and does shooting on film fundamentally change or speak to what the project is about are questions that both creatives and execs sort of go back and forth on before making the choice. But I think ultimately more is shot on digital. Are there any fights that you've fought, whether on this project or any other project that you really, really believed in, you did not get your way and it ended up being good that you didn't get your way. And also the opposite. Are there any things that you didn't agree with that you ended up doing? I would say this is sort of, you know, goes back to what we were talking about vis-a-vis the offer. There have been times where I had a different idea of what a project was than perhaps like the studio or a network in which I was developing that project for. And I think that one of the big lessons and the big takeaways that I got out of that experience was the idea that sometimes you're in a place in your career where you're like, oh, I just want to sell that pilot. I just want to do this whole thing. It's very, very important, I think, for you to be on the same page with your studio, with your network. Because ultimately, making a TV show, making a movie, making anything is so incredibly hard that everybody has got to be like singing the same enthusiastic song because inevitably there's so many obstacles, because it's so difficult. And when people aren't on the same page, it makes it even more challenging. So I think that while that certain project may not have gone to air, it was a blessing in disguise. And it taught me to make sure that you're not selling for the sake of selling, that you're selling with creative partners who who want to feed your proverbial vision. Right. Nice. I love that. Well, I'm a fan of Nikki Toscano. Thank you. I'm a fan of Ellen Pompeo. <laughs> <laughs> Our paths have crossed in the best sort of way. 
and I will say our paths crossed and I met Nikki because of the generosity of another actress, Natalie Portman, who was generous enough to pass along a script to me. There's a lot of talk about women supporting women and I'm really lucky and happy to be in your orbit. And I'm thrilled for your show, The Offer. I fucking love every minute of it. Thank you. And I appreciate you doing this for me this morning. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I appreciate being here. So thanks so much. I hope I'll see you soon. All right. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. 